Hi from the Ivy Park Museum Professionals Network at the BC Museums Association. A little bit about this program. We started in 2021 in response to the immediate needs identified by museum workers who self-identify as part of racialized communities. The IBPOC network hopes to provide targeted support for IBPOC and equity-seeking members of our community through workshops, webinars, networking, and resource development. My name is Sarah Wong, and I am the IBPOC Museum Professionals Network Coordinator. I'm excited to showcase the tremendous work of museum professionals across this province. I myself am located on the territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations in an area colonially known as Vancouver. I want to acknowledge the importance of these lands to my work and my life as a first-generation immigrant woman of color. My deepest gratitude for the Indigenous peoples, past, present, and future, who so generously share these lands, these stories, and these spaces with us. we speak with museums professionals emerging and established from art galleries to historic house museums about what brought them to this sector, what makes them excited about their work, and what they'd like to see change in the future. joined by Amina Shergi of the Museum of Anthropology at the University of British Columbia. I would also like to thank Dr. David Anderson, Director of the Museum Education Program at UBC, for connecting us with Amina and her work. Hi, Amina. Thanks for joining us. How did you get to your current role or position in your career or institution? Um, thank you. So I am an education assistant at the Museum of Anthropology at UBC. Um, which is located on uh, unceded Musqueam territory. And I started there last summer. Um, it was actually a summer term position funded by Young Canada Works um, to work on the museum's new multimedia guide. Um, but because of just the, the nature of the world in summer of 2020, I ended up kind of working more on their other educational endeavors, um, helping them pivot to um, digital delivery. And uh, that summer term, uh, turned into a longer intern internship. So uh, I'm still at MOA a year later. Amazing. Could you please expand on your program at UBC's Museum Education Pro Program? Did you have a favorite course or project in your program? Yeah, so that is a really interesting program um, that I've, I've just finished. I just graduated in, in June of 2021. Amazing, um, congratulations. Thank you, I can't even believe it. And uh, that program is really great for museum educators and other informal educators too, um, who are looking to professionalize their practice. And I found that like it really helped me to ground what I had learned, um, like 
in, in practice uh, within theory, like within academic theory and within research. It also helped me really make connections with other like-minded educator, ed, ed, educators, but um, it's hard to pinpoint like specifics. Like it, it was a very kind of uh, smooth process of one course into the other. And I also found I was um, kind of blending a lot of my school with my work learning, but I think the very first term was a really, um, a really great course. We had a, a course that was just teaching in museums and it really introduced us to the academic literature that was underpinning the work that we do. It was very, very validating course. Like it really helped us understand that we are professionals in our field. Um, and it was really just helpful in understanding why we do what we do. Um, and then the following term I had a course, um, it was on science learning in informal environments, but it was really applicable to other fields as well. And it, I think one thing that really stood out about that course was it, uh, the instructor, David Anderson, he had us define what learning was for ourselves. And mm -hmm. so that was a really useful exercise to really like sit down and write down, like what does learning even mean? And like, what do we value in learning? It was, it was a very helpful exercise. And that definition, <clears throat> that definition I've held onto and I've yeah, continued kind of orienting my practice around that. That's amazing. And I, I just have a quick follow up question um, for students um, or recent graduates who are um, thinking about this program. Could you please tell us, is it a bachelor's pro program? Is it something that we have to come in with a bachelor's degree already? Is it full time? And how long did it take for you to complete the entire de degree? Yeah, so it's, um, it's a master's program. So I believe you do need to have um, an undergraduate degree to, um, to apply, uh, but they are quite open, I think, about what that uh, degree could be in. Like there was a lot of really, um, a lot of diversity academically within our co cohort, like a lot of people with a lot of different kinds of bachelors. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who had teaching experience. They were people that were more in like museum education or museum practice. And then there's people who were kind of just interested in this field and this was their, their entry into it. Um, it is, uh, a part-time program, technically, I believe you, you typically have one course a term, but then there's also electives that you can take at different times. Okay. Um, it's typically completed uh, within two years and one term, so okay. about two and a half years. Um, but uh, the last, uh, but the last year or so, a little bit under a year, is really dedicated to your graduating project. Um, so you do a research methodologies course. And then you um, you start to do the actual work of, of research. Amazing. That sounds super exciting. And mm -hmm. um, you touched upon this already a little bit, but of course, the past year, year and a half has been um, a bit different. So for any students starting or completing studies during this pandemic, as well as for early career professionals, the virtual nature of work has shifted dramatically. So could you please speak about this digital pivot and whether it has contributed to any improvements in inclusivity in this sector? Mm -hmm. Well, I should I should say too, this program, um, it was mostly by distance to, to begin with. So two years and a bit ago, um, it was mostly online. Um, and I think I really benefited from that. Like we, we saw a lot of people in other programs um, like their instructors really having to kind of um, pivot in, in very extreme ways to offer their courses online, but we were already doing that. And our, our instructors already had the know-how of how to effectively teach online. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really great. It was so great for us um, because there is kind of an art and a science to it. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not just recording your lectures and, and putting them <laughs> online. There's it's like mm-hmm. it's other ways of engaging people and expecting um, and uh, other ways of kind of like documenting uh, their learning. So so yeah, that, it's hard because like in that area of my life, there wasn't too much of a pivot. Um, I did have to really adapt my graduating project because um, we weren't allowed to be in any kind of physical t- contact with uh, research participants. And so that really right. changed the nature of my work there. Um, but at the same time, it, it really does allow for um, expanded access in a lot of ways. Like I was, I was connecting with, um, you know, members of my cohort across the country. Um, at one point I was in Algeria where my family lives for a month long vacation and I was doing studies from there and I was still wow. connecting with people in Canada and um, in the States. Like it's really like just from a location kind of um, perspective, like the, it's really mm-hmm. great to be able to connect with people all over the world that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in, term, in terms of like the work that we do, like um, outside of an academic context, I really do think that um, this digital pivot is allowing for expanded access for mm-hmm. um, folks that can't get to where we are, that can't get through our doors, or who are just not, you know, wanting to be um, on site with us, who might like, you know, face financial barriers to get mm-hmm. to us. Um, I, like I said, I was helping with um, um, bringing the MOA school programming online, and uh, we saw. Um, folks that took up those programs um, who were outside of the lower mainland so you know couldn't feasibly actually get to MOA Um, we heard from teachers who said that they appreciated that a digital program meant that there you know wasn't a a fee for getting a bus or you know like really kind of reducing the cost and um, helping to remove some of those financial barriers to Mm -hmm. still get to engage with us like it doesn't necessarily represent or replace um, you know the on-site experience but it is still like a really worthwhile thing it's still something if you were really intentional about what you're offering online it's still a really worthwhile endeavor Um, absolutely yeah and I I will just say too like within like the working like um you know just working sphere it's really great to be able to have the option to work from home like having that kind of flexibility I think for a lot of folks um, who have you know different access needs, or who you know might not be able to get childcare on a certain day, or I think it, I think there are just a lot of benefits to to this kind of um, flexible arrangement. And I think I, I really hope that this experience for those of us who have seen that kind of pivot, I hope it really you know helps us to build empathy for people who have been mm-hmm. facing these barriers before the pandemic and who will continue to face these barriers afterwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really, really agree with several points that you made there. Um, one of the things that I wanted to kind of just highlight again is the fact that you said that you were able to um, sign in and c- connect with your class all the way halfway across the world in Algeria. And I think it really kind of puts things into perspective because here we are in BC. And I know in the past year, a lot of us have partnered with v- various institutions within Canada, just on the East Coast. And we were complaining about a three hour um, time difference. And I have to just laud you on, on, on the fact yeah. that you were able to connect half a world away. So that is really, really amazing. And I 
also really agree. I think one of the things for us to think, think about is, and I have thought about this for a very long time now, is the fact that the basic commute that we have now is simply just switching a tab or closing a window. Whereas before, if, as several of us know, um, sadly, many of us have to juggle multiple jobs in this sector to make a worthwhile living. So um, the commutes in between really eat up a lot of time. So the fact that you said, right, it's absolutely a lot more accessible for some, of course. Um, It's interesting how I feel that the sector will need to kind of um, address this as we move on to recovery and reopening within BC. So um, yeah, but again, I found that to be very, very, um, a very, in interesting, but also a, a very crit- critical insight that I do hope personally, at, at least, that um, we'll see continue. Um, and speaking of Algeria and your background, um, if you now work in a separate province or country than the one that you grew up in, um, or even that you grew up in here at home, what are some distinct cultural protocols, understandings, or beliefs that are new to, to you or that you feel um, you brought to others here in BC? Well, I, <clears throat> I was born and raised in BC uh, to, to two immigrant parents who came from very different parts of the world. Uh, so I don't know if there's anything um, in particular that I could explain that was, was new to me, because I think just growing up um, in a very multicultural family, uh, there was a lot of just kind of like negotiation between different cultural um, values and ways of doing things. Um, that's that kind of uh, understanding or that kind of um, seeing the world is, I think, just kind of how I was raised. You know, mm-hmm. to to, uh, to to view that there are different ways of doing things, that there are different ways of seeing the world, and that sometimes you have to navigate between them and negotiate them. So I don't know if there's anything in particular I could point to, but yeah, absolutely, I'm still a West Coast girl too. Absolutely. And um, what is one thing significant that you've learned on the job that you wish was taught in school? Yeah, that's also a challenging question to answer because again, um, I find that often the boundaries between my school and my work uh, get a little muddied because Mm -hmm. um, the nature of the program I was in, we were able to apply a lot of our learning in in the workplace and then also bring our work learning into the virtual classroom. But I will say that um, I think that within school, there needs to be more um, focus on how to bring anti-racist and decolonized practices um, into our work. And mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of on the job learning of that, but I, I do think that that deserves more understanding or more thought or more discourse within our school training. That, that's just me personally, I think. And, and not just like from a, you know, academic exercise kind of approach, but really right. just like having time in our in our coursework to really strategically think about what actions need to happen in our practice to ensure that we are working in a way that is anti-racist, that is, you know, progressing towards a decolonized um, future or a world. 
and yeah, just really kind of taking the time to do that. Like, like I said, you know, one of my great experiences was being able to define what learning meant for myself and like really mm-hmm. kind of carve that out. And I, I would just like to see more work done on what does it mean to be an anti-racist in the context of a museum and in the context of museum education and mm-hmm. having space to do that within, um, within our schooling. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind me asking uh, for a follow-up there, it seems that many um, IBPOC professionals have said this. And I wonder, do you feel like maybe it's the job slash um, so- social world that is changing faster, perhaps, than pedagogy? Um, or do you feel like um, there could be anything else that could be done to kind of get schools and curriculum to catch up to kind kind of the so- social um, mentality. I'm not sure about that. I don't know if it's necessarily that one is outpacing the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think honestly, you can learn some pretty hard lessons when things are not progressing very quickly, <clears throat> like when you are on the job and you are encountering. Um, you know, these kind of problematic patterns, like that is also a means of learning things. So it's mm-hmm. not necessarily that, you know, our workspaces are more um, advancing at a different rate than, than our schooling. But I think, I, I don't know, I think one way is just, um, I don't know, maybe just ensuring that instructors, like really looking at, at uh, expanding who it is that we're getting our instruction and our learning from, like, mm-hmm. um, I think that would be a really useful thing. I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Thank you so much. And we're going to um, kind of pivot into a question specific to your um, to to your work. So I'm um, just doing a little bit of research on you. You have completed extensive work with the Royal BC Museum, leading a children's program through the Gold Rush BC exhibit. In your description of the program, you mentioned the complicated identities as collecting institutions. Now, especially working with children who themselves are familiarizing um, with museums as an archive, as a resource of information of the past. Can you discuss how youth participation contributes to collections, programming, engagement, et cetera, of museums in the future? And how does your work in museum education encourage young people to see themselves reflected in a space that predates them? I really like this question because you're you're harkening back to my very first paid gig in a museum. That was a, a summer term uh, developing um, camps uh, in conjunction with that Gold Rush exhibition. And we um, we had students like, or we had uh, campers rather, um, like making videos and um, taking photos and, and doing that kind of thing. And uh, we shared them on the learning portal um, that the Royal BC Museum offers. And it's just really, it's nice to look at that. And then also look at like my recent graduate work, which is all about, you know, how do we engage youth in virtual reality-based storytelling? Like, again, just putting them in the seat of of making things and and offering it up. Um, So it's just nice to kind of see that trajectory for myself, that kind of, there's like a refinement, but it's also like consistency in what I value. but to your question, I will just say, like, I think that, you know, art, history, culture, science, like, these are not 
These are not just things that you collect in an institution. These are dynamic processes of generation of discourse. Um, these are spaces that we you know, creatively reimagine. And I think it's just so important to empower youth to be active in those processes, to like take agency uh, as you know, creators of art, of history, of culture, of science. Like I just think that's really, really important because youth have really unique perspectives and values and um, life experiences. Many uh, youth are really socially and politically engaged and they, you know, many have their sights set on the future and building a future that they wanna see, like so much passion. Um, and I think that my job as a museum educator is really to, just to help people find things that resonate, like find stories, find themes that resonate with them and their values. And if they can't find them to like kind of be an accomplice to help them make those things or take space and, and create those stories and those, those themes. So yeah, I kind of, I kind of see myself as yeah, someone who can help actualize the goals and the values that youth have and bring into institutions, like bring into museums, um, because those unique ways of thinking, those unique um, experiences and values, I, they just really enrich the active processes of, of culture and history and science that we, uh, we have in museums. I just think it's, yeah, I just think that they enrich so many different aspects of those fields in so many different ways. And I've, I've just been very privileged to work with like really engaged youth um, and just to see the kinds of like, I don't know, just the kinds of things that they can do and the, the kinds of dreams that they have for themselves and for our world. It's just really, really powerful. And I just, I wanna be an accomplice to that as much as I can. Amina, I also just wanted to add that I absolutely adore the fact that you use the word accomplice. I think that in itself is such a great example of decentralizing um, what it means to be an educator. I think a lot of us grew up in an, in an environment where we knew that there was a hierarchy that if you were a student, if you were a listener, you had to have a certain um, position almost below somebody who, who was instructing you. But when you say a complex, I feel like that is a word that a lot of young people um, feel is closer. It's almost like they're in on some, some things, so they form a better and more engaged relationship with the per person who might be teaching them inside mm -hmm. of an, an exhibit. And I just absolutely, I love that word. I've never heard that word used in this context before. And I just think it's something that's really, really like it, it, it hooks you in and it makes you feel comfortable immediately. So thank you so much for, for you using that here and enlightening us. Um, I just wanted to kind of go through a little bit more about, um, I guess, your experiences and your likes and dis dislikes. So um, our next question is, what is your number one advice for future museum professionals? Or what is one advice you wish you had received from established professionals when you entered this sector? Mm. Well, I think, um, especially with like, you know, these, uh, these rocky times that we live in. I would say that um, job security, like I, I don't know her. You know, job security is, is uh, <laughs> something that I've, I've, I've kind of struggled with. Um, I worked at the Royal BC Museum um, 
on contract for five years and it was like a really uh, great experience. Um, but it, you know, it, on contract, so it's term work. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now I'm in a term position too. And um, I'm the kind of person I like, I like having a plan. I like having everything laid out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really learning to let go of that need because um, just the nature of the field is that uh, it's, it's not that simple. You know, it's, it's not as simple as finding your forever job right out of school. I think that's kind of the nature of the work of, of the world right now too. And um, kind of the gig economy that we live in. Mm-hmm. So I think if I could like tell myself something before I got into this work, it, was, it would just be like to really um, understand that that is what we're kind of getting ourselves into mm-hmm. um, and to prepare yourself for that. You know, like it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of the way the world is working right now. I remember when I was coming out of school and even when I was in school, the general assumption, and this is just so dangerous in a way because we all assumed without looking at the evidence um, that once you have your degree, you have a job right there that's waiting for you. That's nine to five. That is traditional Mm -hmm. that you have an office space. And I think when I came into this sector, there's so many amazing, I would say, um, perks about it that you would have benefits in some areas that you couldn't even dream of in other fields. But at the same time, it's, you really have to advocate for yourself. There is no um, guarantee that you'll have a nice cushy office job when you come come out. It absolutely does does not. So thank you so much for being transparent there. And if you don't mind, could I ask then, would that be the answer you would also give for within the next five years? That would be the biggest change you'd like to see in this sector, or maybe there's something else? Yeah, I don't think so. I'm not, um, how do I say this differently? I'm not under the illusion that that's going to be something that changes within the next five years necessarily. Okay. I think there's like a lot of really deep reasons why um, that that is set up the way that it is that mm-hmm. uh, extends beyond the museum sector. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say too, like I feel like my answer was a little bit um, pessimistic, but I, I do just want to echo what you said. There are so many great things about this work. Like I feel really proud to be able to say that I'm within this field. And I think that the work that I do really aligns well with the values that I hold. Um, but it is just kind of, you know, the nature of this type of work that if you mm-hmm. are someone who really needs to have that kind of nine to five in and out, you yeah. know, right away, you have that job security. It's just, it's not realistic. Um, but something, I, th- I think the biggest change that I, I would like to see um I just would like to see our working environments and our outputs, like the exhibitions and programming that we develop. I want to see them become more equitable and accessible and truly inclusive. And I'm not just talking about people being allowed to show up at the table and, um, you know, participate, but like really changing the way that work is done to Mm -hmm. better meet the needs of more people. And I think that again, I don't, I don't think that's going to be within the next five years. I think that's really deep work that needs to happen, but I just would like to see more happening to uproot the manifestations of white supremacy culture mm-hmm. that are in our working spaces and in the products of our work, if that makes sense. Here, here. I, oh my goodness. I really, really, I feel like that is almost a rallying cry. I really agree, agree with you. Thank, thank you for bringing this up. 
um, not just bring, bringing it up, I'm sorry, sorry to say that, to bring this, to keep this, right, within um, the front of our, 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 um, our attention. I think that is really important too. I feel like, like you say, a lot of the times it kind of ends at the tape table, right? So um, mm-hmm. I don't, I personally too, I agree. I don't want this to be every time we have a crisis that we think about the equitable nature that our jobs should be. I think that should eventually, as you say, probably will take a lot more than just the next five years, but it has to be a norm, has to be one of those things where it's not even something that we have to consciously remind ourselves because that's already a part of the way that we work. So um, yes, thank, thank you so much. And Kind of the final couple of questions, um, hopefully a little bit lighter. Um, and uh, so the first one is, what is your favorite museum institution, exhibition, collections, object, or program? That is a difficult question. Um, <laughs> and I feel like I, yeah, I feel like I got, I got too many answers to that one. But uh, I, I'm not just saying this because I'm working there now, but the Museum of Anthropology has like been one of my favorite museums for a long time because of uh, just the approach to exhibition and programming I just think is really, really great and really resonates with me. Um, So that's one institution that I really enjoy. Um, I also, the last time I was in Algeria was in 2019. And just being able to go to some of the museums there and see belongings that come from my people from like ancient times Mm-hmm. That really, it was, it was really, really moving. And, you know, as, as a child of immigrant parents, it's kind of hard sometimes to feel um, rooted to a place or, you know, have it like, they like kind of connected to a place and being able to go somewhere and see things from your people from thousands of years ago. That was just like an experience that I really, really cherished. So that was something really, um, that those those institutions, I can't remember the names of them right now because they are in French and I don't speak French. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, just some of those institutions were really, really powerful. And I know you said not to get to, or like, you know, this is a lighter question, but I'm going to answer it in kind of a darker way. So I, I oh, of course, it, but, please. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Also, when I remember, and I, I talk about this a lot, when I was about 16 years old, um, I went with my school on a trip to Japan and mm-hmm. we went to Hiroshima to the Peace Museum there and I can still vividly remember just some of the um the things that were on display there to illustrate the um the bombing of Hiroshima mm-hmm. in um World War II there was in particular there was a uh, like a stone that came from like a doorstep okay that had um footprints from where someone was standing when the bomb dropped and just oh the shock God. of it yeah. yeah, and you, it was like you could see the shadow of that person, and just looking yeah. at that, decades later, it was shocking. Like it really kind of like, I don't know, the power of that, the power of seeing something so personal yet mundane, yet mm-hmm. horrifying. Oh my goodness, it was like, I don't think it's appropriate to say that that was my favorite museum experiences. Oh, of course. But that was one that really shook my core because it, it's something I still think about just the power of encountering something like that. And I think that's a mm-hmm. power that museums hold is like that power of encounter. I mean, I Sorry feel- to make it dark. 
Yeah, I feel, oh no, 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 please, please don't apologize. I think you really kind of hit home with how, um, how events in history might seem so distant from us, but when you have something that's tangible, um, and like you said, there was a footprint that there was a person, right? And an entire individual there, it really kind of brings it to our attention again that these things still exist, right? The, the, the footprint of this individual still exists, no matter how much his history we think that it belongs mm-hmm. to or that it's de- detached from us. It doesn't ever seem to be able to be de- detached from the present. So, oh, oh my goodness, that is absolutely, I, I've, obviously I have never been there. I've never seen it, but the way that you describe it even to me here makes me feel um, the significance of that. Um, I also wanted to ask you, um, I guess, just to close this interview now, um, who has inspired your work? This could be another museum professional, a teacher, an artist, a public figure, anybody. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to, um, to work with so many really talented educators. Um, the, the team at the learning department at the Royal BC Museum, like I really just learned so much working with them in those five years that I was with them. And I will be like forever grateful to what they taught me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that also includes the youth volunteers because there's like a, there was a really strong body of youth volunteers there as well that really just, I learned so much from, it really inspired me in a lot of ways. And also the um, the contractors, the contracted staff that I worked with there, just really, really, really powerful team. Right now, too, working at MOA, um, I'm working with the curator of education, Dr. Jill Baird, and she mm-hmm. is like, I don't know, she's it's hard to explain. She she works with so much heart, and mm-hmm. she uh, she her priorities just so kind of strongly aligned with mine. It's just really inspiring to see what she's been able to accomplish over her career. Mm-hmm. Um, so much at that place. And then also just the folks at the, um, the Bastard Museum Education Program, my cohort, just mm-hmm. there's so much energy and passion. Like those, those folks, some of them in different you know, stages of their careers, but just all of them really with this drive and this like this hunger and oh, just really, really inspiring to learn alongside those people. Absolutely. And I think Amina, you, you closed this off really well. Like we said earlier, um, there are some good, some bad in this field, like with any field, but I think one of the good or maybe the best is the fact that you never work alone. Um, even if it's not with another individual, you work with materials and ideas and communities. Um, and yeah, and it always feels like there's someone there at at least to feel like you are at home with. Um, And yes, and I just wanted to thank you on behalf of the BCMA for joining me today. Um, I have learned a lot and I know that our audiences will um, very much appreciate your experiences and your thoughts. To follow more of our guests' work, please visit our IBPOC Network website within the membership and mentorship sections of the BCMA website. On our page, you can check out other resources, interviews, and events, as well as transcripts for all of our audio programs.
we'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us through PCMA on all of our platforms or email Sarah at S-A-R-A-H at museum.bc.ca. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.